Uh, pull out the outline you got. Here's what I want us to talk about. We're in a series. We're talking about hope, uh, the panic. What is it that makes us anxious, worried, and afraid? And there's one thing above everything else, statistically, they tell us that freaks us out. It's money. Most of us here at one time or another, maybe even today, we get stressed out about money. That feeling of walking in, looking on the counter, and seeing an envelope with a big red sticker that says final notice. You know, and, and that immediately makes you feel bad about not being able to keep up with your commitments. It's the final notice, so that means what's going to happen if you don't or aren't able to pay it. It's just a horrible, horrible feeling. Having to call the billing office at the hospital or at your physician and figure out how to make payments because you're unable to pay off the doctor's visit for one of your kids. It's, it's embarrassing. It's, it's challenging. It's stressful. It, it makes us anxious. Now, we all deal with money in different ways. Some of us are spenders. How many of you are a spender? If you're honest, you're a spender. Okay. How many of you are sitting next to a spender who lied and didn't raise their hand? <laughs> uh, how many of you are savers, right? Yes, yeah. Say, they have no problem at all raising their hand. Proud of me. Uh, how many of you are hoarders? You buy and hang on to it. And, uh, how many of you are a pushover for a salesman? Anybody? I am. Okay, I am a pushover. You know when you go to the mall and you have those people that are trying to sell you an electric shock, that little pad to make you feel better, or your fingernails or something for your teeth? Stephanie always has to walk in between me and them because I'll, I'll stop and then they've got you, right? Once you stop and then it's like, here, let's put that on your hand and oh, doesn't it look better? And I can't see a difference, but I go, yeah, it really looks different, you know? <laughs> you put that things on your eyes, don't you? The wrinkles are gone and they're like... Yeah, they are, you know. And, and so if, I, if Steph lets me go to the mall by myself, I come home with all kinds of weird things that they're selling in those little deals. I'm a, I'm a pushover sometimes. That's why, you know, here at the church, we, we want to be good stewards of the resources that God gives us. And so we have an incredible team. Pastor Matt, who has an MBA, leads out on that team. Um, of course, we have an, uh, an accountant on that team, certified accountant. And then we get audited every year by a very reputable um, accounting service, outside accounting uh, service, because we want to be um, good stewards. Now, I want to, because it's difficult to evaluate ourselves, I want us to take a little quiz, a little financial quiz, and here's where you can find it. Pull out your phone, and it's on our app, all right? Pull out your phone, most of you were already, you know, texting, emailing, but go to Potential Church app, we have an iOS and an Android, and if you haven't uh, downloaded it already, tisk, 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 Okay. And if you look right on the front page, you're going to find this financial quiz, which is going to help you evaluate whether you're a spender or a saver, not just your opinion, but how you answer just four questions, okay? Now, if you don't have a phone, you got a flip phone, okay, and you don't have internet service, then we're going to put it up here on the screen. You can go old school paper and pencil and write it down. You'll have to add it up at the end. The app does that all by itself. So let's go to the question number one. You're at the mall and you see a shirt that you like. What do you do? Pull out your wallet and buy it? Decide not to buy the shirt? I mean, after all, you have enough clothes. C, 
You forget about the shirt, try to think about something else, or D, buy the shirt and then feel like crap the rest of the day because you bought it. You feel guilty. Question number two. You get an inheritance from a family member. How do you spend it? A, you spend it in three months, that, it's gone. You invest some, save some, and then have some for a rainy day. You ask your friends what they think you should do. Or you leave the check on cash because there's no way in the world any of your relatives left you money. It must be a mistake. Number three, your boss rewards you with a significant bonus for a job well done. What do you do? Search on the web for that dream car you've been thinking about. Thank your boss and put it in a money market or CD or something. Deposit the bonus and you'll figure it out later. Be grateful for the bonus, but wonder if it's enough to cover all your debt. And then the last question. A friend asked to borrow money. What do you do? Give him or the money? After all, they're your friend, right? You should give it to him. Or B, agree to lend the money, but you set up a payment plan so that you can be repaid in a timely manner. You give them the 20 bucks, but then you're like, here are a payback plan for 10 monthly payments of only $10 or $2 or whatever. C, you say no before they even get it out of their mouth. Or D, you lie. And you say, I'd love to give you the loan, but I don't have the money. Which one of those? Now, like I said, on the app, it will immediately give you the key and tell you the answers. If you did old school paper, add up how many A's, how many B's, how many C's do you have, and here's the key. If you have two or more A's, you're a spender. If you have B's, you're a saver. Go to the next. If you have C's, you're an avoider. And if you have D's, you are a worrier, right? We all deal with money in different ways. Worry about it. We ignore it, hoping it'll go away. We save it. We spend it. Um, But statistically, we stress about it. And, you know, in this series, we've been talking about going to the panic room. Money can send us there, but there's a second part of the title of the series. And it's, there is a way out. And that's what I want us to talk about. Because I really believe that the Bible gives us a way out. And I want us to look at a story Jesus shares in Mark chapter 4, okay? Mark chapter 4. Let's look at it. Once again, Jesus began teaching, underline that word teaching, by the lake shore. A very large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. That way his voice would carry. Then he sat in the boat while all the people remained on shore. Verse 2, he taught them. There's that word again. By telling many stories in the form of parables, such as the one we're going to look at. Now, here's what I want you to see. Mark chapter 4, we could look at it in the context of anything you deal with. We can look at it at money. We could look at it in relationships, parenting, business. In other words, Jesus sat down and he's going to teach them. Now, what, what, what is this teaching about? Well, he teaches them in order to fulfill a promise. Now, what is the promise? It's found in John 10.10. 10. Look what it says. My purpose, this is Jesus speaking, my purpose is to give them. Now, who is them? My purpose, Jesus says, I have come, I'm here to give them. Who is them? You. It's me. Say that with me. Me. 
Who is them? It is me. Jesus says, I came to give me a, now read this out loud with me at all of our campuses, a rich, no, this is good news. Let's say it happy. A rich, that's why Jesus came. That is his um, promise to us. Now, here's the question. How does he do that? Because, see, a lot of us don't have that. You're here, you love Jesus, but if you were honest, you'd say, you know what, I have a stressful and overwhelming life. I have a financially struggling life, but I do not have a rich and satisfying life. So how does Jesus fulfill this promise in our lives? Before we look at how he does, let's talk about how he doesn't do it. First of all, he doesn't zap us with a rich and satisfying life. Now, you might watch some religious programs on television and get the idea that if you give this much money or if you do this or do that, that God will zap you. And that's not what Scripture teaches. You and I don't just walk along or hold up our hands and all of a sudden God, like lightning, zaps us and we're like, oh, I'm rich and I'm satisfied. You know, all of a sudden money has come from different... No, he doesn't do that. You won't find that in Scripture. Does he do miracles? Of course he does. Does he bless? Of course he does. And we're going to talk about that. But he doesn't zap us with a rich and satisfying life. It's not there. And he doesn't do it for you. So how does he do it? Well, he does it by what the Scripture said in those first two verses of Mark chapter 4. Remember what it said? What was Jesus doing? He was teaching So the way in which Jesus fulfills his promise of giving you and me a rich and satisfying life is that he teaches us principles that will lead to a rich and satisfying life. In other words, if you and I will not just know but do the principles he teaches us, we will have a rich and satisfying life if God can be trusted, if God keeps his word, if God is faithful. Now, the challenge is we live in a culture that says the opposite. We live in a culture that says you and I are the victim. The reason you don't have a rich and satisfying life is not your fault, the culture tells us. It's because of something that's happened on the outside that's made your life unfair. It's because of your lack of education. It's because of the parents you had. It's because of something out there who has done something to you to either hurt you or keep you from having a rich and satisfying life. Understand, that's not what the Scripture teaches. You know why? Because God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere at one time. And He's made a promise that every one of us, not some of us, but all of us can have a rich and satisfying life. And there is nothing powerful enough to keep God from keeping his promise. You you and I may have had difficulties. We may have had obstacles. There may be challenges in our lives, but we are not the victim. Why? Because God is with us. And therefore, we can be overcomers, not under the circumstances. Now, with this idea of being the victim, we tend to think we're owed something. Right? We, I'm owed a rich and satisfying life. I mean, you, you owe this to me. My boss owes me. I do this, this, and this. My boss owes me. Well, think about it. God, in the Old Testament, you got Noah, remember, it rained for 40 days and night, and you have the ark. God told Noah how to build the ark, and he was very specific. This wide, you know, this tall. God even protected Noah when he was in the ark, but... Who built the ark? 
Noah did. Noah is the one that built the ark. Now, what do you think would have happened if Noah would have waited for God to zap him? If when God told him it was going to rain, he would have said, I believe it, God. I love you. I trust you. And then he looks over, you know, and he's like, God, I'm starting to see clouds. (laughs) Where's the ark? I hear the thunder. (laughs) Uh, God, where's the ark? What do you think God would have said? He just said, you're going to drown. I promised to protect you. You are a righteous man, but I told you how to build. You have to apply the principles. And when Noah built or applied the principles and built the ark, he was protected, just as God said that he would. And the same is true for you and I. God will give you, please hear this, God will give you a rich and satisfying life. That's what his word says. I'm not saying that. That's what we read. Jesus died so that you could have it, but you have to apply the principles that he teaches That's what Mark chapter 4 is about. Now, and and again, let me just give you one other example before I move on here. Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then what? All these things will be given to you as well. Seek first. What is the kingdom and his righteousness? Live these principles, and if you live these principles, then you will what? You will find yourself in position to have and experience a rich and satisfying life. It's just over and over again in Scripture we see this. So here's what I want us to do. Like I said, we could look at any principles. We could look at principles about business. We could look at principles about parenting. All of, we could have a rich and satisfying life in all those areas. That's the promise. If we'll apply the principles. But there are two areas we struggle the most in. In my 25, maybe even 30 years of pastoring, there are two areas. Sex and money. Those are the two areas in which we struggle the most to actually live out what the scripture says. So I, but the one we have greatest stress over is money. And so I want us to talk about that. And I think if living God's principles lead to a rich and satisfying life, then what's the next question? What are God's principles concerning money? Now, I've taught on this on several different occasions. If the Bible has thousands of verses, all you got to do is go to Google, type in Bible, and then type in the word money. You'll be amazed at the number of times the scripture mentions something uh, about money. I'm just going to look at three, all right? And, and I'm, this, well, let's just talk about them. Number one, money doesn't satisfy. Money doesn't satisfy. Now, the interesting thing about these biblical principles is that they're not just experienced by those who are Christ followers. They're also experienced by people who don't even, may, may not even believe there is a God. Uh, let me uh, show you a couple of secular fellas who have discovered that money doesn't satisfy. Watch this. I had everything a man could want, even then. I, had, I was a millionaire. I had a beautiful, beautiful women in my life. I had um, cars, a house, an incredible, uh, a solid gold career, and, and a future. And yet, on a daily basis, I wanted to commit suicide. So, to me, uh, I had a, a real um, disillusionment, awakening, kind of a revelation about you know, the phoniness of, of material acquisition. It just doesn't, I knew that even then it didn't work. But there are a lot of people with tons of money who, are, who aren't happy because they're, either they become a prisoner of their money right. or they become so consumed with getting money that they 
don't allow time for happiness. All right, so there's a couple of artists, musicians. Uh, Jim Carrey, I put his quote in your outline. I hope everybody can get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so they will know that is not the answer. Now, again, the, the reason they've discovered this is because this is a biblical principle that is true, right? And it's true because God says so. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, look at what it says. Those who love money will, read it out loud with me, never, how meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Now, here's the key. The key is not to just, here's what James said. Don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer as well. In other words, I think probably most of us would say, yeah, money can't bring happiness, but you just got a second job because you thought if you could live in a certain neighborhood, you'd be happy. Or if you could send your kids to a certain school, they would be happy. Or if you could drive a certain car, you would be happy. In other words, I want to challenge you a little bit today. And I want to challenge that, yes, we know that in our minds, but that's not the principles we're living by. We're working longer hours. We're working more jobs. And we've even said, if I could just make a little more money, everything would be okay. The scripture says, it's just meaningless. That's, that's not true. Hebrews 13, 5, don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. So money can't, it can't satisfy us. Here's the second principle, biblical principle about money. Money isn't reliable. Money isn't reliable. Some of us believe that if we had enough money, we would be at peace, we'd be peaceful and secure. We wouldn't have to worry or be anxious. I had a flat tire, I could pay for a new one. If the kids get sick, I could take them to the doctor. When they get old enough, I'll send them to college. If the economy went crazy, I've got enough tucked away. If I lose my job, I'll be okay. But I want to, again, I want to show you this principle. I want to introduce you to a gentleman that we met because of you guys through Temple Centurions, that envelope, you realize that we've helped build uh, medical facilities, homes, schools, and churches in Syria and Iraq, where people, but because of ISIS, have been just pushed out of their homes. You've done that if you're a Temple Centurion. But I want to introduce you to a man who is one of those who got pushed out of his home. He was a millionaire. I'm You know, it's a sad story, and, but one of the things you notice is that when he lost his money, the one thing he didn't lose is God's love. And while money, you know, got up and walked away as a result of the war over there, it is the church, God's people, that was there to care for him. Money's not reliable. It, it 
tends to walk away. And again, you know that, but you're not living that way. You're telling yourself that if you could have just a little more, there'd just be a little more peace in your life. There'd be a little less stress in your life. I just want to remind you, nations don't have enough money. I'm a kid of the 80s, and I remember the Soviet Union. I remember going against them in the Olympics. I remember the Cold War and the fear of nuclear weapons. And I remember President Reagan standing in front of the Berlin Wall telling Gorbachev, you know, tear down this wall. And it eventually came down. Why? Did Reagan kick it over? Did the Americans knock it over? No, no. You know why? Because they ran out of money. They couldn't feed their people. So if, if governments can run out of money, if governments don't have enough money to provide security for their people, what makes you think you can get enough? It's not reliable. And that's exactly what the scripture tells us. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, look what it says. Teach those who are rich in this world. Now, who are the rich in this world? It's not quite as quick to jump on that one. Because the truth is, okay, and you can do, I, I, if I had the time, I got it all printed out, but I just don't have enough time. So I encourage you to, to investigate it. You are. I can tell from looking at you and, and uh, what you have just with you, that you're in the top 20% when it comes to wealth in the world. Now, you, I know you're like, Troy, come home with me, and you'll find out that's not true. Right? But it is. That's the bottom end. At the bottom end, those of us who have the least who, uh, that are here today, you're in the top 20%. Most of you are much higher than that. So when he's talking to the rich, even though you and I might not feel like the rich, I'm telling you, when Paul wrote this to Timothy, he couldn't imagine the kind of car you drive or the house you live in or the air condition or the food or the clothes. So he's talking to me, okay? He's talking to you. He's talking to us. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not, and here's the part I want you to see, not to trust in their money, which is so, what's the next word? unreliable. The thing that you, again, I know you know this, but you are working, believing, trying to get enough money so you can feel secure. The scripture just says it's unreliable. It cannot produce what you hope that it will. And he tells us there, and I'm going to show you, he says there, our trust, those who are rich, should be in God who does what? He gives us what we need. In other words, he is reliable. And he tells us why it's unreliable in Matthew 6. These are the words of Jesus. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them, rust destroys them, and thieves break in. So he says, he's going to define it now. He's going to say, no matter how much money you get, moths are still going to eat. Moths, they didn't have raid when the scripture was written, okay? So if you had curtains, you had malls. If you had more than one set of clothes, you had malls. If you had bedding, you had malls. Most people didn't, but if you were wealthy, you did. What is he saying? He's saying there's a certain amount of loss that comes with having. So if you have several pairs of clothes, you're going to have to wash them. Some of them are going to get torn. Some uh, are, are going to face... 
um, the, the storms and some are going to, all of the, the, all the things that you have, the more that you have, the more you have to figure in a certain amount of loss. It's right. It's like when you buy a car today, if you were to buy a brand new car, drive it off the lot, can you sell it for what you bought it for? No, right? It depreciates. You have to figure that in. Well, that's what he's saying. And you, and you have to do that. In other words, the more you have, the more you have to be thinking, how much do I really have? Because this was here, this depreciated there, this was lost there. And then he says, rust destroys it. So not only do you have to calculate, but you also have to maintain it. You have to change the oil. If you have a house, you have to paint it. If you have shoes, you have to polish them. The more shoes you have, the more you have to polish. And then he says thieves, right? The more you have, the more you're worried somebody will steal it. How many of you own something that you know nobody's ever going to steal it because it's not worth anything, right? Some of you drive cars that you don't even have to lock, okay? (laughs) But if you drive a Ferrari, you lock it. And not only do you lock it, you're worried what? Somebody will dent it, right? The bigger your house, the better your secure system. If you've got a giant house like some of those uh, uh, television stars, you have security people. That's all he's saying, right? You, you can't ever get enough. You'll never have enough money to, to, to do all. And so you're going to spend all your time doing what? Taking care of what you have. And so this is what I wrote in my notes. When money is your attempt at peace and security, you won't have much of either. You'll be rich with money, but you'll be poor in peace and security. He tells us that in Psalm 33. The best equipped army cannot save a king, nor a great strength enough to save a warrior. Don't count on your uh, war horses to give you victory. For all its strength, it cannot save you. doesn't matter. It, we, we have the biggest army in the world. But that doesn't keep a lone person from blowing up a mall. The army can't protect you. That's what the scripture's saying. And if you and I think we can get a big enough army that will protect us from every danger, it won't. He says, no, the Lord is our hope. He is our help. He is our shield. doesn't mean those things are bad. It just means those things can't provide what so many of us are working so hard in hopes that it would. Security. I won't have to worry if I just have enough. Here's the third one. Generosity experiences happiness. In other words, happiness and joy are found in being generous. Now, let's listen to the richest man in the world. Well, it's the most fulfilling thing we've ever done. And, uh, you know, you can't take it with you. And if it's not good for your kids, you know, then let's get together and brainstorm about, you know, what what can be done. Uh, The world is a far better place because of the philanthropists of the past. And the U.S. tradition here, which is the strongest, is the envy of the world. And part of the reason I'm so optimistic is because I do think philanthropy is, is going to grow and take some of these things. Government's just not good at working on and discovering and, and, and shine some light in the right direction. All right. Do you notice two things he said? All right. He said generous people. He said philanthropists, but I can't say that word, so I'm going to say generous people. All right. Of the past have done great things. And he said that America is the envy of the world when it comes to generosity. Well, why is that? It's because of the Christian principles 
the biblical principles our nation was founded on. And, and let me prove it to you. Who started the colleges and universities in our nation? Who started the hospitals? Who started the orphanages? It was Christ followers. It was the church. Now, they're not all Christ followers today. Some of them have gone off into the secular world. But America is what it is because of the, uh, that, that foundation, because of this principle. This principle that true happiness and true satisfaction is found in generosity. Let me show you what Jesus said. You may not realize Jesus said this in Acts 20. He says, and I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is, and let's just read this out loud together. You ready? It is more blessed. Now let's say it again. It is more. Yeah, that's the principle. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I want us to dive a little deeper because the Bible gets more specific than that. Just as within the case of Noah, he didn't just say build a boat. He said this big. He said this kind of wood. He said put pitch on the inside. He is very, very specific in what the ark should look like. And the Bible is very specific in what our generosity should look like. Why? Why does the Bible get specific about what generosity is? So that we will not self deceive. The easiest thing in the world is to deceive yourself. You're doing something that you're not. That's why we can go on a diet and not lose weight. Right? Have you ever been on a diet and not lost weight? How does that happen? Because you lie to yourself about what you're really eating. Right? You're like, oh, I didn't have anything today. And you start adding it up. You're like, oh, shoot. Right? That's why every good dietitian is going to tell you what? Write down what you eat. Why? Because you and I will lie to ourselves. Well, that's why God says, I'm going I'm to show you what generosity is. Because it's the principle that will change your life. You want a rich and satisfying life? You got to know money can't do it. You got to know money's not satisfying, it's not reliable. But generosity is the principle that leads to being rich and satisfied. Satisfied, rich and satisfied, abundant. Some translations say life. He says, so I don't want you to miss that because you've deceived yourself into believing you're living a principle that you're not. So he gets very specific. Proverbs 3, 9, the wisdom writer says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with, and, you know, your resources and with the best part, or some translations say first part of everything you produce. So right off the bat, God says, I want you to honor. Here's how you live generously. Honor me with what I have given you. And we're going to give, I'm going to give you three words that give us the details. Okay. Here are the three words as we dive into the specifics, kind of like the wood and the size of the ark. The word, first word's tithe. The second word's nudge. The third word's enjoy. Tithe, nudge, and enjoy. Now, I've taught on these before. And so if you want to go deeper, you can go online or go to the bookstore. But there's lots of scriptures that talk about the tithe. But the one that is the clearest is Malachi 3, 7 through 10. Let's read it in context of what we've learned so far. He says, this is God speaking. Ever since the days of your ancestors... And who is he speaking to? God's people. Those of you who are Christ followers, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. So what is he saying? What's he saying? He's saying, you are not living by my principles. 
You've scorned them. I've given you my principles, but you're not living by them. <clears throat> now, God says, but I'm going to give you another opportunity. Because if you read Malachi or you read Haggai, here's what you'll find, okay? In chapters 1 and 2, I think in Haggai, maybe chapter 6, it talks about how they put money in their pocket uh, only to stick their hand in there and it be gone. Money runs through their hand like sand. That, they're, that they eat, but they're still hungry. They put on coats, but they're still cold. They drink, but they're still thirsty. Maybe you can relate to that. You got a second job, but you don't have any more money. You're just distressed. You're just as tired. You got a promotion, but you're still struggling financially. In other words, every time you take two steps forward, it's like you get pushed three steps backwards. You just can't seem to make progress. That's exactly what he's saying here. He's saying you have forgotten my principles and as a result, you are not living a rich and satisfying life. Now, he doesn't leave us there. He says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And they respond the way you and I do. But you ask, how can we return when we have never gone away? You and I say, God, God I love you. Why am I struggling? I go to church. I serve in the I changed three dirty diapers this weekend, God. That's got to mean something, right? We say the same thing. What are you talking about, God, not living your principles? I do this and I do that and I do this. He says, but you ask how we can return when we have never gone away. Then he says, I'm going to give you an example. Verse 8. Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. What? what, what? But you ask, what, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? And he tells them. You have cheated me of the tithes. The word tithe means a, a tenth or 10%. You have cheated me of the tithe and the offerings do me. You are under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. I mean, it just doesn't get clear in that. He says the reason you're not rich and satisfied, the reason you don't have an abundant life is because you financially, now you could talk about marriage, you could talk about business, you could talk about parenting, those principles in that area. But here we're talking about finances. He says, why? Why? Because you're cheating me. You're not returning to me the tithe that is one of my, one of my principles. And therefore, you are struggling. You cheated me. You're under a curse. He says, but you don't have to stay there. Look what he says in verse 10. Bring, what's the next word? Oh, don't fade out on me. I know this is tough. Don't fade out on me. Bring what? All the tenth, all the tithe into the storehouse. Circle the word all. This is important. Again, you can argue with me. You, you don't have to do this. This is, but I want you to at least wrestle with it. Because I, 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 I just believe it. it. He says bring all. He doesn't say bring some or bring most. He says bring all of the tenth. Return to me the tithe. Partial obedience is disobedience. When I've got three children, and when they were younger, and I would say, Tyler, come here. And Tyler would take three steps towards me. I wasn't happy about his three steps. Why? Because what did I tell him? Come here. Come into the living room. Partial obedience is disobedience. Disobedience. Because it's about trust. 
That's really what this is all about. Do I believe that God's principles will actually lead to a rich and satisfying life? Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there'll be enough food in my temple. The storehouse, the temple. The temple represented where God's people gathered. It represented where God was. If you were to go to the New Testament, God resides in you and me. We are his temple according to 1 Corinthians 6, but, but the church is where we gather together. He's not talking about your grandmother here. He's not talking about the guy on the side of the street. He's not talking about helping your uh, nephew go to college. He's talking about returning the tithe to the local church. That's what, that's what, that's what I have believe. That's what Steph and I practice. If you do, if you live the principle What's the promise? I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will part a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. God knew it would be tough for us. Put me to the test. All right? So that's the tithe. Secondly, we have the nudge. 2 Corinthians 9. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. What's the nudge? It's when you see the guy on the side of the road and the Holy Spirit just kind of taps you on the shoulder and says you need to help them. It's Temple Satyrian. It's helping send your niece to college. It's helping your grandmother. It's taking care of your parents. It's not the tithe, it's the nudge. The tithe has nothing to do with something you feel. It has something to do with what God has said. The nudge, on the other hand, is God moving your heart. And when he 